All right, welcome back. This is the sixth episode of the Fort St. David's podcast. I am your host, the author, the reader, and your pal, Eric Bader. Uh, it is uh, currently a extremely rainy Oregon night here in the first month of the new decade, which if you've been following the Daily Miltonian, you do know that we are calling this the tweens until we get to 2013, in which case the, we'll be in the teens. Um, right now I'm going to read chapter four of The Pilot and the Panda, which is, I believe, pages 55 through 60. And, uh, this chapter is sort of significant because this was the first, uh, this chapter was the first thing I ever read, like, officially uh, at a reading. I think I'd read stuff before from my uh, super weird, um, that's right, at Rutgers, New Brunswick, I gave a weird reading of uh, my kind of experimental, almost sci-fi novel called Arrow, which uh, probably only a few of you listeners even have a clue about, um, <laughs> maybe I'll start reading that on the Fort St. David's podcast when I run out of everything else. Uh, it's some pretty crazy stuff. There actually is a recording of it, now that I think of it, that I did in Jovi's room. Uh, they had, like, weird experimental guitar stuff. Uh, maybe two people on the planet have a cassette of that. I don't think I'm included. Um, anyway, yeah, this was the first thing I ever read, and I remember it was at a place, I want to say the name of it was Villani. Uh, it's like on Walnut Street or somewhere in the, near the Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. All this past is getting kind of foggy to me as it becomes further and further in the past. Uh, but, uh, Matthew Kaczynski, a.k.a. The Reason, uh, was dating Sherry O'Connor at the time. And Sherry worked at Villani or Villania, but I think I'm mixing that up with the, uh, former Philadelphia Weekly music journalist, Jonathan Valadia. I think it's Villani. Uh, I don't even know if it's there anymore. Uh, let me know if it is. Uh, yeah, and you can, you know, please please feel free to, to uh, email me, just ericbader at gmail.com, with any kind of input or anything you got about how you feel about this podcast. And, uh, and please, now that I'm remembering it, uh, you know, write a review on the iTunes site, because there are none, and I'm not allowed to do it. And, you know, click the little star thing. Give it five stars if you like it. Give it one if you hate it. But, uh, you know, I'm giving you this stuff, so give a little back, and we'll call it a community. So, anyhow, uh, yeah, it was at, it was at Villani, and Sherry worked there, and I guess there was some sort of opening, and she's like, you should read, and I said, all right, and I kind of pulled out the manuscript, and I remember, I want to say this was the, uh, this was the summer of 2001, so I think I was almost done the book, but uh, I finished it in the fall of 2001, um, but I think I was writing the final draft of it, so I was probably, um, I rewrote the whole thing three times, and so I was probably just might have been at the point where this was, because I, I probably thought it was fresh. and Whatever it was, this was what I decided to read. And I stole, I remember, I stole a trick that I had seen Dave Eggers, of all people do, 
when he read at the first two and five fest, which I believe was in two thousand, and that was kind of cool. I went there with uh, my pal Sweet Lou, Lou Denunzio, and uh, I think Lou, right? Lou had borrowed a sweater of mine and was wearing it. And Dave Eggers, we were in the front seat. We were in the front. I can't I can't remember how we finagled our way to get 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 all the way to the front of the library, but we did. And Eggers was like, oh, he's doing a sort of thing. He's like, oh, it's really cold in here. I could really use a sweater. Oh, how about that sweater? And Lou's like, oh, okay. He looks at me and I say, sure. And he wears it. And then afterwards, um, you know, we, we, we cut our we, – I'm like, I got to get my sweater back. The reading's over. And he's signing books and stuff. We cut to the front of the line. We go, man, I need the sweater. And he's like, oh, love the sweater. How much for it? I'll write you a check right now. And I stopped and I thought about it. And I said, why don't you trade me for some literature? And he goes, okay. So we got like – Two, I think we got like three, two copies of the new McSweeney's and like maybe two old ones. He gave us like a hundred or hundred fifty dollars worth of literature for this brown sweater, V-neck sweater. I got it for three bucks, and I uh, I was sort of the secretly excited when I saw like a photo shoot with him somewhere and uh, he was wearing the sweater. So I'm sure he still has it. It's a cool sweater. Um. Anyway, at his at his reading, he did this trick where it's this little like thing. He he uh, he's like, oh, I'm really bad at a uh, you know eye contact, and I don't think you know. I know it's eye contact is supposed to make you feel like you uh, are part of the audience, you know, or the, I mean, or like you know, like the audience is you know connected to you or whatever. And uh, and the late David Foster Wallace, I remember when I saw him read, said a similar thing. He said, you know. It's supposed to make you feel like I know you're here. He's like, I'm really bad with eye contact. Just know that I know you're here. Uh, but Eggers took it one step further, and he said, okay, I'm going to get somebody who is good at eye contact. Can I get an attractive young woman to come up here? And he, and he did, and he said, you guys, she she can look at the audience. You can look at her, and she's more fun to look at than me. And, uh, you know, I was only... Uh, 24 at the time, and I thought, this is really clever, so uh, I stole the idea, and I got Sherry O'Connor to be my eye contact at the reading at Villani, Villania, Villania, and um, the, this will be the first time that I've read it since, nine years later. So here it goes. This is chapter four of The Pilot and the Panda. The rain started in towards the end of June, and it seemed like it would never end. Day after day of dreary deluge. Since I had no schedule, no responsibilities, no real things to do, time was a confusing and muddy matter to me, and something like two days of rain seem, could seem like a few weeks of rain. On the first day it just drizzled, cold and oily drizzle. I had been invited to a party somewhere in the fabled art museum area. I arrived somewhere around seven, strung out on coffee and painfully early. There were only a few people there, and I didn't know anyone. I had forgotten whose party it was in the first place. Was I even really invited? Or had I just heard about it? Perhaps some of my roommates were talking about it, and I just overheard. There were plush couches, obligatory glossy magazines on a wooden coffee table, and a sad-looking tray with chips, fruit, and dip that no one would ever touch. I gave a nervous half-wave to all and sundry in the room, and then stuttered something about, hey, could I use your uh, phone? 
I was handed a sleek black cordless phone and I leaned into a safe-seeming corner under a Degas print and called my house, my eyes on the floor as to avoid curious stares. I could hear them wondering silently, who is he? Tina picked up the phone. What is it, Baxter? She squeaked in her snotty rich girl tone. Who's at the house, Tina? What? I mean, who's there? Larry just left. Hmm, Jake, I think. And Jonah? No, Jonah left with Larry. I don't know. What are you doing? What? I said, what are you doing? I'm just sitting here with Peter. Why? Muffled sound of, who's that? A perturbed Peter. Is Bert there? Maybe. Well, could you go check? No response. Ken? God, okay, hold on. Muffled sounds again. Tina implores Peter to go see if fucking Bert is. A door opens, closes. A loud sigh. More mumbling. After what seemed like an eternity, footsteps approached the phone. These are all, all these little asides are in brackets. Uh, I guess uh, I was reading a lot of plays then. <laughs> footsteps approached the phone. She picked up again. Yes, she said he's here. Well, can I talk to him? She sighs violently. Yes. Hold on. Muffled sounds continue. God. Sound of rough footsteps. Slam door. Again, it was a few minutes before she returned. I cautioned fate and looked around the room at a handful of strange people sitting around and smoking and talking about what else? Music. Chance to smile at a girl on the couch. No response. Dead blank stare. Duh. Door and in brackets. Door violently opens. Stomp of footsteps. Tina again. She picks up the phone just to say, here he is, and then hands the phone to Bert. Bert, I say. What's going on, Dave? Do you want to come to a party? A party? Yes, a party. Ever been to one? Well, yes. Good. Great. So why don't you come to this one? Why don't I... What? I'm chewing my knuckles. It's a party, Bert. A party. A real party. There will be drinks. There will hopefully be girls. Drinks, girls, people to meet and things to do. A party. Why don't you come? I needed his support. He was something. Anything. I don't... I don't know, Dave. The conversation dragged on, an endless loop. Bert apparently was such a loser he couldn't even pull himself out of the house to go to a simple party. I couldn't even remember why I wanted him to come in the first place. I guess I just wanted someone to talk to. The people there were so art schooly, so hoity-toity, and the whole time I was on the phone it seemed that they were just glaring at me in marked, marked disdain. Finally I just said goodbye to Bert and hung up the phone. It was a hopeless cause. I found a thankfully empty space on the couch next to a spidery and emaciated guy with horn-rimmed glasses, wearing a tight green button-up shirt and paint-splattered jeans. More kids were filing through the door, singles in couples and groups. I sat there wondering where the free drinks were. The guy seated next to me introduced himself as Lester. He was a student at Tyler. Painting, he said. That was his major. Painting. Dealing with paint. That also, he said, was his life. My life is paint. There is nothing, my friend, like painting and smoking, he said, lighting up his second cigarette since I sat down. It keeps the soul clean, clean, and it allows one to work com completely unfettered, open, you see, and clean. Uh-huh, I thought. Okay. I figured now was my chance. So, Lester, my man, I said, you know where they're keeping the drinks around here? I had been eyeing up the glass of beer in his hand the entire evening. Brown, cool, refreshing beer. Oh, the drinks, he said absentmindedly, looking around. Of course, the drinks! 
You, my dear friend, you look like a man who needs a drink. David, you said your name was? Yes, David, you look like a man in sore need of a little liquid refreshment. I, too, am a man who likes to relax, kick back, unwind, cool out, as they say, with a few adult beverages. I rarely drink, drink when I paint, though, you see. You see? When I'm working, painting, that is, the work, my work, when I'm working, I need to keep my mind clear. Unfettered, as you say, I said, hoping to steer him back to the topic of drinks. Exactly, he said, clear mind, unfettered, clean soul, open, receptive. When I finish, though, finish the work, finish a painting, well, it's off to Dirty Frank's. That's a bar in Philadelphia that is still, I'm sure, populated with art school students. I need, I must cleanse myself of everything I just witnessed and experienced. You see, it helps take the guilt off. And now I look at you, my good friend David, and I see it in your eyes. I know what you're thinking. Guilt in painting? That's just what you want to say, I know. I just know. But it is. It's there. The guilt. Think about it. Painting. The work. It's an illegitimate creation. Not God's act. When one has created a painting, and I mean really created something, and a good painting at that, then one has broken the actual laws of creation itself. The laws of the universe, my friend. There is a guilt that sets in. An unbearable heavy guilt like a big wet woolen cloak over your head. It's a nagging guilty feeling. The feeling that one may have possibly, just possibly, have contributed to this, due to this destruction or else the salvation of all of mankind. Of all of mankind. Depending on the nature of the painting. Are you following me? Sure, but I'll get back to you. You see, I'm just looking for... Right! The drinks! He slapped my knee. Well, let's go get you the, the some drinks. Ah, ah, don't get up just yet. There is a way we can do this, and I mean do it right. Hold on now, good man, if I can just... Oh, there she is, Kelly! He motioned over to a girl named Kelly and asked if he if he could if she could so kindly please fix him up fix himself and this gentleman with two vodka and tonics. Not exactly my drink of choice, but I wasn't about to complain, no sir. I felt so nervous sitting there with all these people, and the bad music was getting louder, and more and more people were pouring through the door. It was as if there was no end to the people coming through the door, and as the music got louder and worse, the people started to seem even weirder. This is my generation, I tried to remind myself. Lester informed me that the party was actually an art school party. What school? All of them! After Kelly graciously brought us the drinks, I began to feel a bit more relaxed. It wasn't so much as the effect of the alcohol. It was merely the fact that I felt more at ease just sitting there with a drink in my hand. The tumbler glass of vodka and tonic in my hand, beads of perspiration dripping from its sides, and the way I could use it to motion and gesture all made me feel like I actually belonged. It was a wonderful prop. After I finished the drink, Lester and I sauntered into the kitchen where they kept all the alcohol, and we helped ourselves to the good stuff. There was a bottle of wild turkey, 80 proof, that no one seemed to care for. That is, no one except me. I poured myself glass after glass, at first mixing it with water and then not really caring at all. I wasn't succeeding at getting myself drunk, but as Hemingway would put it, I began to feel quite fine. My liquid, liquid courage ration bolstered, I began to walk around a little more, instead of perching myself in safe corners. In the living room, I ran into Kelly, the girl who had brought us the initial drinks. As it turned out, this was her asked, her house. 
Uh, and so I asked the harmless question, what do you do? Oh, I'm a painter, she said unconvincingly, as if she'd rehearsed the response, her eyes wandering around the room in search of someone more important to talk to. I mean, I go to the school for painting. I nodded and faked a nice, polite smile. She sure was cute, though. The textbook art school look. Five-five, petite, short black hair, corduroy pants, and a sports team shirt, very tight, that covered a pair of humble-sized, brawless breasts, faint outline under the yellow fabric. Does art school make you look like this, or do you have to actually look that way to go to art school, I wondered. <laughs> what I think was funny is, uh, on a quick aside here, I actually work at an art school now, and uh, the scene should be taking place, I believe, in 1996, so 14 years later, the answer is yes, they still look like that. And I don't, I still don't have an answer to the question of whether art school makes you look like that, or you have to look that way to go to art school. Uh, even her face seemed to be from a sort of special cookie cutter. Very cute, though, I had to admit. Cute. Her yellow t-shirt said Cougars in big black letters. Some old sports team from far away middle school sometime during the 1980s. Uh, of course, I don't think, uh, people would wear a Cougars shirt today, um, unless they were going for a different kind of ironic meaning. <laughs> Anyway, I tried to keep polite eye, eye contact and not look down at the cougars. She was so petite and cute. The drink splintered my thought and worked heavily upon my tact. So what do you do, she asked me. I didn't know what to say to her. Would I tell her that I was just a jobless deadbeat, a failure and a loser, a desperate man, that my idea of having fun was listening to Mozart string quartets all day and reading books that weighed more than she did and wandering around town and thinking myself into a stupor? Should I tell her about how I paid my rent month to month with a dwindling bank account that consisted of my meager savings from jobs I held in high school and some tax returns? Should I tell her about my two wasted years in community college and how I dropped out because someone broke my heart and I was convinced that, yes, at 19 years of age, I was actually beginning to lose my mind? Should I tell her about all those weird pills I swallowed one night back in May because I actually, and I mean actually, was convinced that I didn't want to live anymore? That I'd seen quite enough, thank you very much. Oh, I'm a writer, is what I said instead. She looked at me for a moment. Genuine concern? Oh, she said. So, like, what do you, you know, write? Uh, you know, fiction, uh, short stories, that sort of thing. Not, po not poetry, though. Hell no. Where was I coming up with this crap? What goofball higher power was dictating these screwy lines to me? I wasn't a writer. I barely even wrote letters. What would I know? What, what would I write about anyway? My life wasn't interesting enough to write about. So who's your favorite writer, she said. And that's what set it off. Standing right there in the middle of the living room, the music blaring, the art school students drunken all around us, yelling over the music and spilling their drinks and falling into each other. That's where I went off. That's where I lost my cool. I started with Oscar Wilde and some ended up somewhere between the Etruscans and the King James Bible. On and on I went, winding through the circuitous and narrow paths of the unwieldy storehouse of built-up facts in my head, footnoting myself, digress and discourse, deviant and devolving, giving obscure references, comparing and contrasting, dissecting and disclosing, and making absolutely no sense whatsoever. 
all the concentrated knowledge of the hundreds of books I'd read in the past few years and my complete lack of ability to catalog or just plain deal with all those things that I had learned was oozing out in an unstrained outburst of slobbering, whiskey-fueled gibberish, balderdash, and downright drivel. Amazingly, Kelly just stood there patiently, like a child being reprimanded, her drink steady in her left hand. When I had exhausted myself, I just stared at her wide-eyed, wild-eyed, waiting on tiptoes for her to say anything, for her to, to say, to, for her to say something, for her to say anything. But she only just stared back, her eyes narrow, her drink steady in her hand. You sure know a lot about books, was all she had to offer. After that, she swiftly managed to lose herself into the crowd, first escaping by greeting something, someone who had just walked by, saying something to me about how she hadn't seen this guy in years and just had to, like, you know, say hello. I couldn't get her attention for the rest of the night. She made damn sure of it. I spent the rest of my time at the party, slumped down on the couch, dejectedly sipping my drink. I wasn't alone. Lester sat there with me, cluing me in on all the collective wonders of de Kooning and Francis Bacon. Mercifully, the room was loud enough that I could barely hear him. Around midnight, I was beginning to feel, feel ill, and I left the party. The rain was coming down heavy now, and I began to amble my way home, drunk and wet in the dark summer rain. The trip was a blur, just a rainy, sad affair. When I got back, I threw myself down on my bed and passed right out. The last thought I had in my head right before I lost consciousness was, I'm a writer? And that's it for this episode. Thanks a lot, and I'll see you guys next time.